0: That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time.
1: And if you love the Filet-O-Fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: Book 5, Part 2 of The Republic by Plato. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob can there be any greater evil than discord and distraction and plurality where unity ought to reign or any greater good than the bond of unity well, there cannot and there is unity where there is community of pleasures and pains where all the citizens are glad or grieved on the same occasions of joy and sorrow no doubt Yes and where there is no common but only private feeling a state is disorganized when you have one half of the world triumphing and the other plunged in grief at the same events happening to the city or the citizens certainly such differences commonly originate in a disagreement about the use of the terms mine and not mine his and not his exactly so and is not that the best ordered state in which the greatest number of persons apply the terms mine and not mine in the same way to the same thing quite true or that again which most nearly approaches to the condition of the individual as in the body when but a finger of one of us is hurt the whole frame drawn towards the soul as a centre and forming one kingdom under the ruling power therein feels the hurt and sympathizes altogether with the part affected and we say that the man has a pain in his finger and the same expression is used about any other part of the body which has a sensation of pain at suffering or of pleasure at the alleviation of suffering very true he replied and i agree with you that in the best ordered state there is the nearest approach to this common feeling which you describe then when any one of the citizens experiences any good or evil The whole State will make his case their own, and will either rejoice or sorrow with him?' "'Yes,' he said. "'That is what will happen in a well-ordered State.' "'It will now be time,' I said, "'for us to return to our State, and see whether this or some other form is most in accordance with these fundamental principles. Very good.' "'Our State, like every other, has rulers and subjects?' "'True. All of whom will call one another citizens?' "'Of course.' But is there not another name which people give to their rulers in other states? Generally they call them masters, but in democratic states they simply call them rulers. And in our state, what other name besides that of citizens do the people give the rulers? They are called saviors and helpers, he replied. And what do the rulers call the people? Their maintainers and foster fathers. And what do they call them in other states? slaves and what do the rulers call one another in other states fellow rulers and what in ours fellow guardians did you ever know an example in any other state of a ruler who would speak of one of his colleagues as his friend and of another as not being his friend yes very often and the friend he regards and describes as one in whom he has an interest and the other as a stranger in whom he has no interest exactly but Would any of your guardians think or speak of any other guardians as a stranger? Certainly he would not, for every one whom they meet will be regarded by them either as a brother or sister, or father or mother, or son or daughter, or as the child or parent of those who are thus connected with him. Capital, I said. But let me ask you once more. Shall they be a family in name only, or shall they in all their actions be true to the name? for example in the use of the word father would the care of a father be implied and the filial reverence and duty and obedience to him which the law commands and is the violator of these duties to be regarded as an impious and unrighteous person who is not likely to receive much good either at the hands of god or of man are these to be or not to be the strains which the children will hear repeated in their ears by all the citizens about those who are intimated to them to be their parents and the rest of their kinsfolk. These, he said, and none other, for what can be more ridiculous than for them to utter the names of family ties with the lips only, and not to act in the spirit of them? Then in our city the language of harmony and concord will be more often heard than in any other. As I was describing before, when any one is well or ill the universal word will be with me it is well or it is ill most true and agreeably to this mode of thinking and speaking were we not saying that they will have their pleasures and pains in common yes and so they will and they will have a common interest in the same thing which they all will alike call my own and having this common interest they will have a common feeling of pleasure and pain yes far more so than in other states and the reason of this over and above the general constitution of the state will be that the guardians will have a community of women and children that will be the chief reason and this unity of feeling we admitted to be the greatest good as was implied in our own comparison of a well-ordered state to the relation of the body and the members when affected by pleasure or pain that we acknowledged and very rightly then the community of wives and children among our citizens is clearly the source of the greatest good to the state certainly and this agrees with the other principle which we were affirming that the guardians were not to have houses or lands or any other property their pay was to be their food which they were to receive from other citizens and they were to have no private expenses for we intended them to preserve their true character of guardians.' "'Right,' he replied. "'Both the community of property and the community of families, as I am saying, tend to make them more truly guardians. They will not tear the city in pieces by differing about mine and not mine, each man dragging any acquisition which he has made into a separate house of his own, where he has a separate wife and children and private pleasures and pains but all will be affected as far as may be by the same pleasures and pains because they are all of one opinion about what is near and dear to them and therefore they all tend towards a common end certainly he replied and as they have nothing but their persons which they can call their own suits and complaints will have no existence among them they will be delivered from all those quarrels of which money or children or relations are the occasion of course they will neither will trials for assault or insult ever be likely to occur among them for that equals should defend themselves against equals we shall maintain to be honorable and right we shall make the protection of the person a matter of necessity that is good he said Yes, and there is a further good in the law, that is, that if a man has a quarrel with another, he will satisfy his resentment then and there, and not proceed to more dangerous lengths. Certainly. To the elder shall be assigned the duty of ruling and chastising the younger. Clearly. Nor can there be a doubt that the younger will not strike or do any other violence to an elder, unless the magistrates command him nor will he slight him in any way. For there are two guardians, shame and fear, mighty to prevent him. Shame, which makes men refrain from laying hands on those who are to them in the relation of parents, fear, that the injured one will be succoured by the others who are his brothers, sons, and fathers. That is true," he replied. Then, in every way the laws will help the citizens to keep the peace with one another, yes there will be no want of peace and as the guardians will never quarrel among themselves there will be no danger of the rest of the city being divided either against them or against one another none whatever i hardly like even to mention the little meannesses of which they will be rid for they are beneath notice such for example as the flattery of the rich by the poor and all the pains and pangs which men experience in bringing up a family and in finding money to buy necessaries for their household borrowing and then repudiating getting how they can and giving the money into the hands of women and slaves to keep the many evils of so many kinds which people suffer in this way are mean enough and obvious enough and not worth speaking of yes he said a man has no need of eyes in order to perceive that and from all these evils they will be delivered and their life will be blessed as the life of olympic victors and yet more blessed how so the olympic victor i said is deemed happy in receiving a part only of the blessedness which is secured to our citizens who have won a more glorious victory and have a more complete maintenance at the public cost for the victory which they have won is the salvation of the whole state and the crown with which they and their children are crowned is the fulness of all that life needs. They receive rewards from the hands of their country while living, and after death have an honorable burial. "'Yes,' he said, "'and glorious rewards they are.' "'Do you remember,' I said, "'how, in the course of the previous discussion, some one, who shall remain nameless, accused us of making our guardians unhappy?' they had nothing and might have possessed all things to whom we replied that if an occasion offered we might perhaps hereafter consider this question but that as at present advised we would make our guardians truly guardians and that we were fashioning the state with a view to the greatest happiness not of any particular class but of the whole yes i remember and what do you say now that the life of our protectors is made out to be far better and nobler than that of olympic victors is the life of shoemakers or any other artisans or of husbandmen to be compared with it certainly not at the same time i ought here to repeat what i have said elsewhere that if any of our guardians shall try to be happy in such a manner that he will cease to be a guardian and is not content with this safe and harmonious life, which, in our judgment, is of all lives the best, but infatuated by some youthful conceit of happiness which gets up into his head, shall seek to appropriate the whole state to himself, then he will have to learn how wisely Hesiod spoke, when he said, Half is more than the whole. If he were to consult me, I should say to him, Stay where you are, when you have the offer of such a life you agree then i said that men and women are to have a common way of life such as we have described common education common children and they are to watch over the citizens in common whether abiding in the city or going out to war they are to keep watch together and to hunt together like dogs and always and in all things as far as they are able women are to share with the men and in so doing they will do what is best and will not violate but preserve the natural relation of the sexes i agree with you he replied the inquiry i said has yet to be made whether such a community be found possible as among other animals so also among men and if possible in what way possible you have anticipated the question which i was about to suggest there is no difficulty, I said, in seeing how war will be carried on by them. How? Why, of course, they will go on expeditions together, and will take with them any of their children who are strong enough, that, after the manner of the artisan's child, they may look on at the work which they will have to do when they are grown up. And besides looking on, they will have to help and be of use in war, and to wait upon their fathers and mothers." Did you never observe in the arts how the potters' boys look on and help long before they touch the wheel? Yes, I have. And shall potters be more careful in educating their children and in giving them the opportunity of seeing and practicing their duties than our guardians will be? The idea is
0: ridiculous, he said.
1: There is also the effect on the parents, with whom, as with other animals, the presence of their young ones will be the greatest incentive to valor. "'That is quite true, Socrates. And yet, if they are defeated, which may often happen in war, how great the danger is! The children will be lost as well as their parents, and the State will never recover." "'True,' I said. But would you never allow them to run any risk?" I am far from saying that. Well, but if they are ever to run a risk, should they not do so on some occasion when, if they escape disaster, they will be the better for it? Clearly. Whether the future soldiers do or do not see war in the days of their youth is a very important matter, for the sake of which some risk may fairly be incurred. Yes, very important. This, then, must be our first step to make our children spectators of war but we must also contrive that they shall be secured against danger then all will be well true their parents may be supposed not to be blind to the risks of war but to know as far as human foresight can what expeditions are safe and what dangerous that may be assumed and they will take them on the safe expeditions and be cautious about the dangerous ones true "'and they will place them under the command of experienced veterans "'who will be their leaders and teachers. "'Very properly. "'Still, the dangers of war cannot be always foreseen. "'There is a good deal of chance about them. "'True. "'Then against such chances the children must be at once furnished with "'wings, in order that in the hour of need they may fly away and escape. "'What do you mean?' he said. I mean that we must mount them on horses in their earliest youth, and when they have learnt to ride, take them on horseback to see war. The horses must not be spirited and warlike, but the most tractable and yet the swiftest that can be had. In this way they will get an excellent view of what is hereafter to be their own business, and if there is danger they have only to follow their elder leaders and escape. I believe that you are right, he said. Next, as to war, what are to be the relations of your soldiers to one another and to their enemies? I should be inclined to propose that the soldier who leaves his rank or throws away his arms, or is guilty of any other act of cowardice, should be degraded into the rank of a husbandman or artisan. What do you think? By all means, I should say. And he who allows himself to be taken prisoner may as well be made a present of to his enemies. He is their lawful prey, and let them do what they like with him. Certainly. But the hero who has distinguished himself, what shall be done to him? In the first place, he shall receive honor in the army from his youthful comrades. Every one of them in succession shall crown him. What do you say? I approve. And what do you say to his receiving the right hand of fellowship? To that too I agree. "'But you will hardly agree to my next proposal.' "'What is your proposal?' "'That he should kiss and be kissed by
0: them.'
1: "'Most certainly, and I should be disposed to go further, and say, "'Let no one whom he has a mind to kiss refuse to be kissed by him while the expedition lasts, "'so that if there be a lover in the army, whether his love be youth or maiden, "'he may be more eager to win the prize of valor. "'Capital,' I said that the brave man is to have more wives than others has been already determined and he is to have first choices in such matters more than others in order that he may have as many children as possible agreed again there is another manner in which according to homer brave youths shall be honoured for he tells how ajax after he had distinguished himself in battle was rewarded with long chines, which seems to be a compliment appropriate to a hero in the flower of his age, being not only a tribute of honor, but also a very strengthening thing. Most true, he said. Then in this, I said, Homer shall be our teacher, and we too, at sacrifices and on like occasions, will honor the brave according to the measure of their valor, whether men or women, with hymns and those other distinctions which we are mentioning also with seats of precedence and meats and full cups and in honouring them we shall be at the same time training them that he replied is excellent yes i said and when a man dies gloriously in war shall we not say in the first place that he is of the golden race to be sure nay have we not the authority of hesiod for affirming that when they are dead they are holy angels upon the earth, authors of good, averters of evil, the guardians of speech-gifted men? Yes, and we accept his authority. We must learn of the god how we are to order the sepulture of divine and heroic personages, and what is to be their specific distinction, and we must do as he bids? By all means. And in ages to come we will reverence them and kneel before their sepulchres as at the graves of heroes, and not only they, but any who are deemed pre-eminently good, whether they die from age or in any other way, shall be admitted to the same honors. That is very right,' he said. "'Next, how shall our soldiers treat their enemies? What about this?' "'In what respect do you mean?' Well, first of all, in regard to slavery.' Do you think it right that Hellenes should enslave Hellenic states, or allow others to enslave them, if they can help? Should not their custom be to spare them, considering the danger which there is, that the whole race may one day fall under the yoke of the barbarians? To spare them is infinitely better. Then no Hellene should be owned by them as a slave. That is a rule which they will observe, and advise the other Hellenes to observe. Certainly, he said they will in this way be united against the barbarians and will keep their hands off one another next as to the slain ought the conquerors i said to take anything but their armor does not the practice of despoiling an enemy afford an excuse for not facing the battle cowards skulk about the field pretending that they are fulfilling a duty and many an army before now has been lost from this love of plunder very true and is there not illiberality and avarice in robbing a corpse and also a degree of meanness and womanishness in making an enemy of the dead body when the real enemy has flown away and left only his fighting gear behind him is not this rather like a dog who cannot get at his assailant quarrelling with the stones which strike him instead very like a dog he said then we must abstain from spoiling the dead or hindering their burial yes he replied we most certainly must neither shall we offer up arms at the temples of the gods least of all the arms of hellenes if we care to maintain good feeling with other hellenes and indeed we have reason to fear that the offering of spoils taken from kinsmen may be a pollution unless commanded by the god himself very true again as to the devastation of hellenic territory or the burning of houses what is to be the practice.' "'May I have the pleasure,' he said, "'of hearing your opinion?' "'Both shall be forbidden, in my judgment. I would take the annual produce and no more. Shall I tell you why?' Oh, "'Pray do.' "'Why, you see, there is a difference in the names discord and war, and I imagine that there is also a difference in their natures, The one is expressive of what is internal and domestic, the other of what is external and foreign, and the first of the two is termed discord, and only the second war. That is a very proper distinction,
0: he replied.
1: And may I not observe with equal propriety that the Hellenic race is all united together by ties of blood and friendship, and alien and strange to the barbarians? Very good, he said. And therefore... When Hellenes fight with barbarians and barbarians with Hellenes, they will be described by us as being at war when they fight, and by nature enemies, and this kind of antagonism should be called war. But when Hellenes fight with one another, we shall say that Hellas is then in a state of disorder and discord, they being by nature friends, and such enmity is to be called discord. I agree. Consider then, I said, when that which we have acknowledged to be discord occurs and a city is divided if both parties destroy the lands and burn the houses of one another how wicked does the strife appear no true lover of his country would bring himself to tear in pieces his own nurse and mother there might be reason in the conqueror depriving the conquered of their harvest but still they would have the idea of peace in their hearts and would not mean to go on fighting for ever Yes, he said. That is a better temper than the other. And will not the city which you are founding be a Hellenic city? It ought to be, he replied. Then will not the citizens be good and civilized? Yes, very civilized. And will they not be lovers of Hellas, and think of Hellas as their own land and share in the common temples? Most certainly and any difference which arises among them will be regarded by them as discord only a quarrel among friends which is not to be called a war certainly not then they will quarrel as those who intend some day to be reconciled certainly they will use friendly correction but will not enslave or destroy their opponents they will be correctors not enemies just so and as they are hellenes themselves they will not devastate hellas nor will they burn houses nor ever suppose that the whole population of city men women and children are equally their enemies for they know that the guilt of war is always confined to a few persons and that the many are their friends and for all these reasons they will be unwilling to waste their lands and raise their houses their enmity to them will only last until the many innocent sufferers have compelled the guilty few to give satisfaction i agree he said that our citizens should thus deal with their hellenic enemies and with barbarians as the hellenes now deal with one another then let us enact this law also for our guardians that they are neither to devastate the lands of hellenes nor to burn their houses agreed and we may agree also in thinking that these like all our previous enactments are very good End of book five part two. Book five part three of the Republic by Plato. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Neufeld. But still I must say, Socrates, that if you are allowed to go on in this way, you will entirely forget the other question which at the commencement of this discussion you thrust aside is such an order of things possible and how if at all for i am quite ready to acknowledge that the plan which you propose if only feasible would do all sorts of good to the state i will add what you have omitted that your citizens will be the bravest of warriors and will never leave their ranks for they will all know one another and each will call the other father brother son and if you suppose the women to join their armies, whether in the same rank or in the rear, either as a terror to the enemy, or as auxiliaries in case of need, I know that they will then be absolutely invincible, and there are many domestic advantages which might also be mentioned, and which I also fully acknowledge. But, as I admit all these advantages, and as many more as you please, if only this state of yours were to come into existence, We need say no more about them. Assuming, then, the existence of the State, let us now turn to the question of possibility and ways and means. The rest may be left. If I loiter for a moment, you instantly make a raid upon me, I said, and have no mercy. I have hardly escaped the first and second waves, and you seem not to be aware that you are now bringing upon me the third, which is the greatest and heaviest. When you have seen and heard the third wave, I think you will be more considerate, and will acknowledge that some fear and hesitation was natural, respecting a proposal so extraordinary as that which I have now to state and investigate. The more appeals of this sort which you make, he said, the more determined are we that you shall tell us how such a state is possible. Speak out, and at once. Let me begin by reminding you that we found our way hither in the search after justice and injustice. True, he replied, but what of that? I was only going to ask whether, if we have discovered them, we are to require that the just man should in nothing fail of absolute justice, or may we be satisfied with an approximation, and the attainment in him of a higher degree of justice than is to be found in other men. The approximation will be enough. We are inquiring into the nature of absolute justice, and into the character of the perfectly just, and to injustice and the perfectly unjust, that we might have an ideal. We were to look at these in order that we might judge of our own happiness and unhappiness according to the standard which they have exhibited, and the degree in which we resembled them, but not with any view of showing that they could exist in fact. True, he said. Would a painter be any the worse because, after having delineated with consummate art an ideal of a perfectly beautiful man, he was unable to show that any such man could ever have existed? He would be none the worse. Well, and were we not creating an ideal of a perfect state? To be sure. And is our theory a worse theory because we are unable to prove the possibility of a city being ordered in the manner described? Surely not he replied that is the truth i said but if at your request i am to try and show how and under what conditions the possibility is highest i must ask you having this in view to repeat your former admissions oh, what admissions i want to know whether ideals are ever fully realized in language Does not the word express more than the fact, and must not the actual, whatever a man may think, always, in the nature of things, fall short of the truth? What do you say? I agree. Then you must not insist on my proving that the actual state will in every respect coincide with the ideal. If we are only able to discover how a city may be governed nearly as we proposed, you will admit that we have discovered the possibility which you demand and will be contented i am sure that i should be contented will not you yes, I will let me next endeavour to show what is that fault in states which is the cause of their present maladministration and what is the least change which will enable a state to pass into the truer form and let the change if possible be of one thing only or if not of two at any rate let the changes be as few and slight as possible certainly he replied i think i said that there might be a reform of the state if only one change were made which is not a slight or easy though still a possible one what is it he said now then i said i go to meet that which i liken to the greatest of the waves yet shall the word be spoken even though the wave break and drown me in laughter and dishonour and do you mark my words proceed i said until philosophers are kings or the kings and princes of this world have the spirit and power of philosophy and political greatness and wisdom meet in one and these commoner natures who pursue either to the exclusion of the other are compelled to stand aside cities will never have rest from their evils nor the human race as i believe and then only will this our state have a possibility of life and behold the light of day. Such was the thought, my dear Glaucon, which I would fain have uttered if it had not seemed too extravagant. For to be convinced that in no other state can there be happiness, private or public, is indeed a hard thing. Socrates, what do you mean? I would have you consider that the word which you have uttered is one at which numerous persons, and very respectable persons too, in a figure pulling off their coats all in a moment and seizing any weapon that comes to hand, will run at you, might and main, before you know where you are, intending to do heaven knows what. And if you don't prepare an answer and put yourself in motion, you will be paired by their fine wits, and no mistake. You got me into the scrape, I said, and I was quite right. However, I will do all I can to get you out of it but i can only give you good will and good advice and perhaps i may be able to fit answers to your questions better than another that is all and now having such an auxiliary you must do your best to show the unbelievers that you are right i ought to try i said since you offer me such invaluable assistance and i think that if there is to be a chance of our escaping We must explain to them whom we mean when we say that philosophers are to rule in the state. Then we shall be able to defend ourselves. There will be discovered to be some natures who ought to study philosophy and to be leaders in the state, and others who are not born to be philosophers and are meant to be followers rather than leaders. Then now for a definition, he said follow me i said and i hope that i may in some way or other be able to give you a satisfactory explanation proceed i dare say that you remember and therefore i need not remind you that a lover if he is worthy of the name ought to show his love and not to some one part of that which he loves but to the whole i really do not understand and therefore beg of you to assist my memory another person i said might fairly reply as you do but a man of pleasure like yourself ought to know that all who are in the flower of youth do somehow or other raise a pang or emotion in a lover's breast and are thought by him to be worthy of his affectionate regards is not this a way which you have with the fair one has a snub nose and you praise his charming face the hook-nose of another has you say a royal look while he who is neither snub nor hooked has the grace of regularity. The dark visage is manly, the fair are children of the gods, and as to the sweet honey pale, as they are called, what is the very name but the invention of a lover who talks in diminutives and is not averse to paleness if appearing on the cheek of youth? In a word, there is no excuse which you will not make, and nothing which you will not say, in order not to lose a single flower that blooms in the springtime of youth. If you make me an authority in matters of love, for the sake of the argument, I assent. And what do you say of lovers of wine? Do you not see them doing the same? They are glad of any pretext of drinking any wine. Very good. And the same is true of ambitious men. If they cannot command an army, they are willing to command a file, and if they cannot be honored by really great and important persons, they are glad to be honored by lesser and meaner people, but honor of some kind they must have. Exactly. Once more, let me ask, does he who desires any class of goods desire the whole class or a part only? The whole. And may we not say of the philosopher that he is a lover not of a part of wisdom only, but of the whole? Yes, of the whole. And he who dislikes learning, especially in youth, when he has no power of judging what is good and what is not, such an one we maintain not to be a philosopher or a lover of knowledge, just as he who refuses his food is not hungry and may be said to have a bad appetite and not a good one. Very true, he said whereas he who has a taste for every sort of knowledge and who is curious to learn and is never satisfied may be justly termed a philosopher am i not right Glaucon said if curiosity makes a philosopher you will find many a strange being will have a title to the name all the lovers of sights have a delight in learning and must therefore be included musical amateurs too are a folk strangely out of place among philosophers for they are the last persons in the world who would come to anything like a philosophical discussion, if they could help, or they run about at the Dionysiac festivals as if they had let out their ears to hear every chorus. Whether the performance is in town or country, that makes no difference. They are there. Now, are we to maintain that all these and any who have similar tastes, as well as the professors of quite minor arts, are philosophers? Well, certainly not. I replied, "'They are only an imitation.' He said, "'Who, then, are the true philosophers?' "'Those,' I said, "'who are lovers of the vision of truth.' "'That is also good,' he said. "'But I should like to know what you mean.' "'To another,' I replied, "'I might have a difficulty in explaining, but I am sure that you will admit a proposition which I am about to make.' "'What is the proposition?' that since beauty is the opposite of ugliness they are two certainly and inasmuch as they are two each of them is one true again and of just and unjust good and evil and every other class the same remark holds taken singly each of them is one but from the various combinations of them with actions and things and with one another they are seen in all sorts of lights and appear many very true and this is the distinction which i draw between the sight-loving art-loving practical class and those of whom i am speaking and who are alone worthy of the name of philosophers how do you distinguish them he said The lovers of sounds and sights, I replied, are, as I conceive, fond of fine tones and colors and forms and all the artificial products that are made out of them. But their mind is incapable of seeing or loving absolute beauty. True, he replied. Few are they who are able to attain the sight of this. Very true. And he who, having a sense of beautiful things, has no sense of absolute beauty or who if another lead him to a knowledge of that beauty is unable to follow of such a one i ask is he awake or in a dream only reflect is not the dreamer sleeping or waking one who likens dissimilar things who puts the copy in the place of the real object i should certainly say that such an one was dreaming but take the case of the other who recognizes the existence of absolute beauty and is able to distinguish the idea from the objects which participate in the idea, neither putting the subjects in the place of the idea, nor the idea in the place of the objects. Is he a dreamer, or is he awake? He is wide awake. And may we not say that the mind of the one who knows has knowledge, and that the mind of the other, who opines only, has opinion? Certainly. But suppose that the latter should quarrel with us and dispute our statement can we administer any soothing cordial or advice to him without revealing to him that there is sad disorder in his wits we must certainly offer him some good advice he replied come then and let us think of something to say to him shall we begin by assuring him that he is welcome to any knowledge which he may have and that we are rejoiced at his having it but we should like to ask him a question does he who has knowledge know something or nothing you must answer for him i answer that he knows something something that is or is not something that is for how can that which is not ever be known and are we assured after looking at the matter from many points of view that absolute being is or may be absolutely known but that the utterly non-existent is utterly unknown Nothing can be more certain. Good. But if there be anything which is of such a nature as to be and not to be, that will have a place intermediate between pure being and the absolute negation of being? Yes, between them. And as knowledge corresponded to being and ignorance of necessity to not-being, for that intermediate between being and not-being there has to be discovered a corresponding intermediate between ignorance and knowledge, if there be such. Certainly. Do we admit the existence of opinion? Undoubtedly. As being same with knowledge or another faculty? Another faculty. Then opinion and knowledge have to do with different kinds of matter corresponding to this difference of faculties? Yes. And knowledge is relative to being and knows being. But before I proceed further, I will make a division. What division? I will begin by placing faculties in a class by themselves. There are powers in us, and in all other things, by which we do as we do. Sight and hearing, for example, I should call faculties. Have I clearly explained the class which I mean? Yes, I quite understand. Then let me tell you my view about them. I do not see them and therefore the distinctions of figure, color, and the like which enable me to discern the differences of some things do not apply to them. In speaking of a faculty I think only of its sphere and its result, and that which has the same sphere and the same result I call the same faculty, but that which has another sphere and another result I call different. Would that be your way of speaking? Yes. And will you be so very good as to answer one more question? "'Would you say that knowledge is a faculty, or in what class would you place it?' "'Certainly knowledge is a faculty, and the mightiest of all faculties.' "'And is opinion also a faculty?' "'Certainly,' he said, "'for opinion is that with which we are able to form an opinion.' "'And yet you were acknowledging a little while ago that knowledge is not the same as opinion.' "'Why, yes,' he said how can any reasonable being ever identify that which is infallible with that which errs an excellent answer proving i said that we are quite conscious of a distinction between them yes then knowledge and opinion having distinct powers have also distinct spheres or subject matters that is certain being is the sphere and subject matter of knowledge and knowledge is to know the nature of being Yes and an opinion is to have an opinion? Yes. Then do we know what we opine, or is the subject matter of opinion the same as the subject matter of knowledge? Nay, he replied, that has been already disproven. If difference in faculty implies difference in the sphere or subject matter, and if, as we were saying, opinion and knowledge are distinct faculties, then the sphere of knowledge and of opinion cannot be the same then if being is the subject matter of knowledge something else must be the subject matter of opinion yes something else well then is not being the subject matter of opinion or rather how can there be an opinion at all about not being reflect when a man has an opinion has he not an opinion about something can he have an opinion which is an opinion about nothing impossible He who has an opinion has an opinion about some one thing, yes, and not-being is not one thing, but, properly speaking, nothing, true. Of not-being, ignorance was assumed to be the necessary correlative, of being, knowledge, true, he said. Then opinion is not concerned either with being or with not-being, not with either, and can therefore neither be ignorance or knowledge. That seems to be true. But is opinion to be sought without and beyond either of them, in a greater clearness than knowledge, or in a greater darkness than ignorance? In neither. Then I suppose that opinion appears to you to be darker than knowledge, but lighter than ignorance? Both, and in no small degree. And also to be within and between them? Yes. Then you would infer that opinion is intermediate? No question but were we not saying before that if anything appeared to be of a sort which is and is not at the same time that sort of thing would appear also to lie in the interval between pure being and absolute not-being and that the corresponding faculty is neither knowledge nor ignorance but will be found in the interval between them true and in that interval there has now been discovered something which we call opinion there has then What remains to be discovered is the object which partakes equally of the nature of being and not being, and cannot rightly be termed either, pure and simple. This unknown term, when discovered, we may truly call the subject of opinion, and assign each to their proper faculty, the extremes to the faculties of the extremes, and the mean to the faculty of the mean. True. This being premised... I would ask the gentleman who is of the opinion that there is no absolute or unchangeable idea of beauty in whose opinion the beautiful is manifold he i say your lover of beautiful sights who cannot bear to be told that the beautiful is one and the just is one or that anything is one-to him I would appeal saying will you be so very kind sir as to tell us whether of all these beautiful things there is one which will not be found ugly or of the just which will not be found unjust or of the holy which will not also be unholy no he replied the beautiful will in some point of view be found ugly and the same is true of the rest and may not the many which are doubles be also halves doubles that is of one thing and halves of another quite true and things great and small heavy and light as they are termed will not be denoted by these any more than by the opposite names? True, both these and the opposite names will always attach to all of them. And can any one of these many things, which are called by particular names, be said to be this, rather than not to be this? He replied, They are like the punning riddles which are asked at feasts, or the children's puzzle about the eunuch aiming at the bat, with what he hit him, as they say in the puzzle, and upon what the bat was sitting the individual objects of which I am speaking are also a riddle and have a double sense, nor can you fix them in your mind, either as being or not being, or both or neither. Then what will you do with them? I said. Can they have a better place than between being and not being? For they are clearly not in greater darkness or negation than not being, and more full of light and existence than being. That is quite true, he said thus then we seem to have discovered that the many ideas which the multitude entertain about the beautiful and about all other things are tossing about in some region which is half-way between pure being and pure not-being we have yes and we had before agreed that anything of this kind which we might find was to be described as matter of opinion and not as matter of knowledge being the intermediate flux which is caught and detained by the
0: intermediate faculty.
1: Quite true. Then those who see the many beautiful, and who yet neither see absolute beauty, nor can follow any guide who points the way thither, who see the many just, and not absolute justice, and the like, such persons may be said to have opinion, but not knowledge. That is certain but those who see the absolute and eternal and immutable may be said to know, and not to have opinion only, but neither can that be denied. The one love and embrace the subjects of knowledge, the other those of opinion. The latter are the same, as I dare say you will remember, who listened to sweet sounds and gazed upon fair colours, but would not tolerate the existence of absolute beauty. Yes, I remember shall we then be guilty of an impropriety in calling them lovers of opinion rather than lovers of wisdom and will they be very angry with us for thus describing them i shall tell them not to be angry no man should be angry at what is true but those who love the truth in each thing are to be called lovers of wisdom and not lovers of opinion assuredly End of book Five. book six part one of the republic by plato this librivox recording is in the public domain read by bob and thus glaucon after the argument has gone a weary way the true and the false philosophers have at length appeared in view i do not think he said that the way could have been shortened i suppose not I said, and yet I believe that we might have had a better view of both of them if the discussion could have been confined to this one subject, and if there were not many other questions awaiting us, which he who desires to see in what respect the life of the just differs from that of the unjust must consider. "'And what is the next question?' he asked. "'Surely,' I said, "'the one which follows next in order.' inasmuch as philosophers only are able to grasp the eternal and the unchangeable, and those who wander in the region of the many and variable are not philosophers, I must ask you which of the two classes should be the rulers of our state?" "'How can we rightly answer that question? Whichever of the two are best able to guard the laws and institutions of our state, let them be our guardians. Very good.' neither i said can there be any question that the guardian who is to keep anything should have eyes rather than no eyes there can be no question of that and are not those who are verily and indeed wanting in the knowledge of the true being of each thing and who have in their souls no clear pattern and are unable as with a painter's eye to look at the absolute truth and to the original to repair and having perfect vision of the other world to order the laws about beauty goodness justice in this if not already ordered and to guard and preserve the order of them are not such persons i ask simply blind truly he replied they are much in that condition and shall they be our guardians when there are others who besides being their equals in experience and falling short of them in no particular of virtue also know the very truth of each thing. But there can be no reason, he said, for rejecting those who have this greatest of all great qualities. They must always have the first place unless they fail in some other respect. Suppose, then, I said, that we determine how far they can unite this and the other excellences. By all means. In the first place, as we began by observing, the nature of the philosopher has to be ascertained we must come to an understanding about him and when we have done so then if i am not mistaken we shall also acknowledge that such an union of qualities is possible and that those in whom they are united and those only should be rulers in the state what do you mean let us suppose that philosophical minds always love knowledge of a sort which shows them the eternal nature not varying from generation and corruption agreed and further i said let us agree that they are lovers of all true being there is no part whether greater or less or more or less honorable which they are willing to renounce as we said before of the lover and the man of ambition true and if they are to be what we were describing is there not another quality which they should also possess what quality truthfulness they will never intentionally receive into their mind falsehood which is their detestation and they will love the truth yes that may be safely affirmed of them maybe my friend i replied is not the word say rather must be affirmed, for he whose nature is amorous of anything cannot help loving all that belongs or is akin to the object of his affections. Right, he said. And is there anything more akin to wisdom than truth? How can there be? Can the same nature be a lover of wisdom and a lover of falsehood? Never. The true lover of learning, then, must from his earliest youth... As far as in him lies, desire all truth? Assuredly. But then again, as we know by experience, he whose desires are strong in one direction will have them weaker in others. They will be like a stream which has been drawn off into another channel. True. He whose desires are drawn towards knowledge in every form will be absorbed in the pleasures of the soul, and will hardly feel bodily pleasure. I mean, if he be a true philosopher and not a sham one, for that is most certain. Such an one is sure to be temperate and the reverse of covetous, for the motives which make another man desirous of having and spending have no place in his character. Very true. Another criterion of the philosophical nature has also to be considered. And what is that? There should be no secret corner of illiberality." nothing can be more antagonistic than meanness to a soul which is ever longing after the whole of things both divine and human most true he replied then how can he who has magnificence of mind and is the spectator of all time and all existence think much of human life he cannot or can such an one account death fearful no indeed then the cowardly and mean nature has no part in true philosophy certainly not or again can he who is harmoniously constituted who is not covetous or mean or a boaster or a coward can he i say ever be unjust or hard in his dealings impossible then you will soon observe whether a man is just and gentle or rude and unsociable these are the signs which distinguish even in youth the philosophical nature from the unphilosophical true there is another point which should be remarked what point whether he has or has not a pleasure in learning for no one will love that which gives him pain and in which after much toil he makes little progress certainly not and again If he is forgetful and retains nothing of what he learns, will he not be an empty vessel? That is certain. Laboring in vain, he must end in hating himself and his fruitless occupation. Yes, then a soul which forgets cannot be ranked among genuine philosophic natures. We must insist that the philosopher should have a good memory. Certainly. And once more the inharmonious and unseemly nature can only tend to disproportion? Undoubtedly. And do you consider truth to be akin to proportion or to disproportion? To proportion. Then, besides other qualities, we must try to find a naturally well-proportioned and gracious mind, which will move spontaneously towards the true being of everything? Certainly. Well, and do not all these qualities? which we have been enumerating, go together, and are they not, in a manner, necessary to a soul which is to have a full and perfect participation of being? They are absolutely necessary, he replied, and must not that be a blameless study which he can only pursue who has the gift of a good memory and is quick to learn, noble, gracious, the friend of truth, justice, courage, temperance, who are his kindred, The god of jealousy himself, he said, can find no fault with such a study. And to men like him, I said, when perfected by years and education, and to these only you will entrust the state. Here Adamantus interposed and said, To these statements, Socrates, no one can offer a reply, but when you talk in this way a strange feeling passes over the minds of your hearers, they fancy that they are led astray a little at each step in the argument owing to their own want of skill in asking and answering questions these littles accumulate and at the end of the discussion they are found to have sustained a mighty overthrow and all their former notions appear to be turned upside down and as unskillful players of drafts are at last shut up by their more skillful adversaries and have no piece to move so they too find themselves shut up at last for they have nothing to say in this new game of which words are the counters and yet all the time they are in the right the observation is suggested to me by what is now occurring for any one of us might say that although in words he is not able to meet you at each step of the argument he sees as a fact that the votaries of philosophy when they carry on the study, not only in youth as a part of education, but as the pursuit of their maturer years, must of them become strange monsters, not to say utter rogues, and that those who may be considered the best of them are made useless to the world by the very study which you extol. Well, and do you think that those who say so are wrong? I cannot tell he replied, but I should like to know what is your opinion. Hear my answer. I am of opinion that they are quite right. Then how can you be justified in saying that cities will not cease from evil until philosophers rule in them, when philosophers are acknowledged by us to be of no use to them? You ask a question, I said, to which a reply can only be given in a parable. "'Yes, Socrates, and that is a way of speaking to which you are not at all accustomed, I suppose. "'I perceive,' I said, "'that you are vastly amused at having plunged me into such a hopeless discussion. But now hear the parable, and then you will be still more amused at the meagreness of my imagination.' for the manner in which the best men are treated in their own states is so grievous that no single thing on earth is comparable to it and therefore if i am to plead their cause i must have recourse to fiction and put together a figure made up of many things like the fabulous unions of goats and stags which are found in pictures imagine that a fleet or a ship in which there is a captain who is taller and stronger than any of the crew but he is a little deaf and has a similar infirmity in sight, and his knowledge of navigation is not much better. The sailors are quarrelling with one another about the steering. Every one is of opinion that he has a right to steer, though he has never learned the art of navigation and cannot tell who taught him or when he learned, and will further assert that it cannot be taught, and they are ready to cut in pieces any one who says the contrary they throng about the captain begging and praying him to commit the helm to them and if at any time they do not prevail but others are preferred to them they kill the others or throw them overboard and having first chained up the noble captain's senses with drink or some narcotic drug they mutiny and take possession of the ship and make free with the stores Thus eating and drinking they proceed on their voyage in such a manner as might be expected of them. Him who is their partisan and cleverly aids them in their plot for getting the ship out of the captain's hands into their own, whether by force or persuasion, they compliment with the name of sailor, pilot, able seaman, and abuse the other sort of man whom they call a good-for-nothing but that the true pilot must pay attention to the year and seasons and sky and stars and winds and whatever else belongs to his art if he intends to be really qualified for the command of a ship and that he must and will be the steerer whether other people like or not the possibility of this union of authority with the steerer's art has never seriously entered into their thoughts or been made part of their calling now, in vessels which are in the state of mutiny, and by sailors who are mutineers, how will the true pilot be regarded? Will he not be called by them a prater, a star-gazer, a good-for-nothing? Of course, said Adamantis. Then you will hardly need, I said, to hear the interpretation of the figure, which describes the true philosopher in his relation to the state, for you understand already. Certainly then suppose you now take this parable to the gentleman who is surprised at finding that philosophers have no honor in their cities explain it to him and try to convince him that their having honor would be far more extraordinary i will say to him that in deeming the best votaries of philosophy to be useless to the rest of the world he is right but also tell them to attribute their uselessness to the fault of those who will not use them and not to themselves the pilot should not humbly beg the sailors to be commanded by him that is not the order of nature neither are the wise to go to the doors of the rich the ingenious author of this saying told a lie but the truth is that when a man is ill whether he be rich or poor to the physician he must go and he who wants to be governed to him who is able to govern the ruler who is good for anything ought not to beg his subjects to be ruled by him although the present governors of mankind are of a different stamp they may be justly compared to the mutinous sailors and the true helmsmen to those who are called by them good-for-nothings and star-gazers precisely so he said for these reasons and among men like these philosophy the noblest pursuit of all is not likely to be much esteemed by those of the opposite faction not that the greatest and most lasting injury is done to her by her opponents but by her own professing followers the same of whom you suppose the accuser to say that the greater number of them are errant rogues and the best are useless in which opinion i agreed yes and the reason why the good are useless has now been explained true then shall we proceed to show that the corruption of the majority is also unavoidable and that this is not to be laid to the charge of philosophy any more than the other by all means and let us ask and answer in turn first going back to the description of the gentle and noble nature truth as you will remember was his leader whom we followed always and in all things failing in this he was an impostor and had no part or lot in true philosophy yes that was said well and is not this one quality to mention no others greatly at variance with present notions of him certainly he said and have we not a right to say in his defence that the true lover of knowledge is always striving after being that is his nature he will not rest in the multiplicity of individuals which is in appearance only, but will go on. The keen edge will not be blunted, nor the force of his desire abates, until he have attained the knowledge of the true nature of every essence by a sympathetic and kindred power in the soul, and by that power drawing near, and mingling, and becoming incorporate with very being, having begotten mind and truth. He will have knowledge, and will live and grow truly, and then, and not till then, will he cease from his travail. Nothing, he said, can be more just than such a description of him. And will the love of a lie be any part of a philosopher's nature? Will he not utterly hate a lie? He will. And when truth is the captain, we cannot suspect any evil of the band which he leads?' impossible justice and health of mind will be of the company and temperance will follow after true he replied neither is there any reason why i should again set in array the philosopher's virtues as you will doubtless remember that courage magnificence apprehension memory were his natural gifts and you objected that although no one can deny what i then said still if you leave words and look at facts the persons who are thus described are some of them manifestly useless, and the greater number utterly depraved. We were then led to inquire into the grounds of these accusations, and have now arrived at the point of asking why are the majority bad, which question of necessity brought us back to the examination and definition of the true philosopher. Exactly. And we have next to consider the corruptions of the philosophic nature why so many are spoiled and so few escape spoiling i am speaking of those who were said to be useless but not wicked and when we have done with them we will speak of the imitators of philosophy what manner of men are they who aspire after a profession which is above them and of which they are unworthy and then by their manifold inconsistencies bring upon philosophy and upon all philosophers that universal reprobation of which we speak. "'What are these corruptions?' he said. "'I will see if I can explain them to you. "'Every one will admit that a nature having in perfection "'all the qualities which we required in a philosopher "'is a rare plant which is seldom seen among men.' "'Rare indeed. "'And what numberless and powerful causes "'tend to destroy these rare natures?' "'What causes?' In the first place there are their own virtues, their courage, temperance, and the rest of them, every one of which praiseworthy qualities, and this is a most singular circumstance, destroys and distracts from philosophy the soul which is the possessor of them. That is very singular, he replied. Then there are all the ordinary goods of life, beauty, wealth, strength, rank, and great connections in the state you understand the sort of thing these also have a corrupting and distracting effect i understand but i should like to know more precisely what you mean about them grasp the truth as a whole i said and in the right way you will then have no difficulty in apprehending the preceding remarks and they will no longer appear strange to you and how am i to do so he asked why i said we know that all germs or seeds whether vegetable or animal when they fail to meet with proper nutriment or climate or soul in proportion to their vigour are all the more sensitive to the want of a suitable environment for evil is a greater enemy to what is good than to what is not very true there is reason in supposing that the finest natures when under alien conditions receive more injury than the inferior because the contrast is greater certainly and may we not say adamantus that the most gifted minds when they are ill educated become pre-eminently bad do not great crimes in the spirit of pure evil spring out of a fulness of nature ruined by education rather than from any inferiority whereas weak natures are scarcely capable of any very great good or very great evil there i think you are right and our philosopher follows the same analogy he is like a plant which having proper nurture must necessarily grow and mature into all virtue but if sown and planted in an alien soil becomes the most noxious of all weeds unless he be preserved by some divine power do you really think as people so often say that our youth are corrupted by sophists or that private teachers of the art corrupt them in any degree worth speaking of? Are not the public who say these things the greatest of all sophists? And do they not educate to perfection young and old, men and women alike, and fashion them after their own hearts? When is this accomplished? he said. When they meet together, and the world sits down at an assembly, or in a court of law, or a theatre, or a camp, or in any other popular resort, and there is a great uproar, and they praise some things which are being said or done, and blame other things, equally exaggerating both shouting and clapping their hands, and the echo of the rocks and the place in which they are assembled redoubles the sound of the praise or blame at such a time will not a young man's heart, as they say, leap within him? will any private training enable him to stand firm against the overwhelming flood of popular opinion? or will he be carried away by the stream will he not have the notions of good and evil which the public in general have he will do as they do and as they are such will he be yes socrates necessity will compel him and yet i said there is a still greater necessity which has not been mentioned what is that the gentle force of attainder or confiscation or death which as you are aware these new sophists and educators who are the public apply when their words are powerless indeed they do and in right good earnest now what opinion of any other sophist or any private person can be expected to overcome in such an unequal contest none he replied no indeed i said even to make the attempt is a great piece of folly there neither is nor has been nor is ever likely to be any different type of character which has had no other training in virtue but that which is supplied by public opinion i speak my friend of human virtue only what is more than human as the proverb says is not included for i would not have you ignorant that in the present evil state of governments whatever is saved and comes to good is saved by the power of god as we may truly say. I quite assent, he replied. Then let me crave your assent also to a further observation. What are you going to say? Why, that all those mercenary individuals whom the many call sophists and whom they deem to be their adversaries do, in fact, teach nothing but the opinion of the many, that is to say, the opinions of their assemblies. And this is their wisdom. I might compare them to a man who should study the tempers and desires of a mighty strong beast who is fed by him. He would learn how to approach and handle him. Also at what times and from what causes he is dangerous, or the reverse, and what is the meaning of his several cries, and by what sounds, when another utters them, he is soothed or infuriated. And you may suppose further, that when, by continually attending upon him, he has become perfect in all this, he calls his knowledge wisdom, and makes of it a system or art, which he proceeds to teach, although he has no real notion of what he means by the principles or passions of which he is speaking, but calls this honorable and that dishonorable, or good or evil, or just or unjust, all in accordance with the tastes and tempers of the great brute. "'Good,' he pronounces, to be that in which the beast delights, and evil to be that which he dislikes, and he can give no other account of them except that the just and noble are the necessary, having never himself seen, and having no power of explaining to others, the nature of either, or the difference between them, which is immense. "'By heaven, would not such an one be a rare educator?' "'Indeed he would.' and in what way does he who thinks that wisdom is the discernment of the tempers and tastes of the motley multitude whether in painting or music or finally in politics differ from him who i have been describing for when a man consorts with the many and exhibits to them his poem or other work of art or the service which he has done the state making them his judges when he is not obliged the so-called necessity of Diomede, will oblige him to produce whatever they praise. And yet the reasons are utterly ludicrous, which they give in confirmation of their own notions about the honorable and good. Did you ever hear any of them which were not? No, nor am I likely to hear. You recognize the truth of what I have been saying? let me ask you to consider further whether the world will ever be induced to believe in the existence of absolute beauty rather than of the many beautiful or of the absolute in each kind rather than the many in each kind certainly not then the world cannot possibly be a philosopher impossible and therefore philosophers must inevitably fall under the censure of the world they must and of individuals who consort with the mob and seek to please them that is evident then do you see any way in which the philosopher can be preserved in his calling to the end and remember what we were saying of him that he was to have quickness and memory and courage and magnificence these were admitted by us to be the true philosophers gifts yes "'Will not such an one from his early childhood be in all things first among all, "'especially if his bodily endowments are like his mental ones?' "'Certainly,' he said. "'And his friends and fellow-citizens will want to use him as he gets older for their own purposes?' "'No question. Falling at his feet, they will make requests to him and do him honour and flatter him, "'because they want to get into their hands now the power which he will one day possess.' that often happens he said and what will a man such as he is be likely to do under such circumstances especially if he be a citizen of a great city rich and noble and a tall proper youth will he not be full of boundless aspirations? fancy himself able to manage the affairs of hellenes and of barbarians and having got such notions into his head will he not dilate and elevate himself in the fulness of vain pomp and senseless pride to be sure he will now when he is in this state of mind if some one gently comes to him and tells him that he is a fool and must get understanding which can only be got by slaving for it do you think that under such adverse circumstances he will be easily induced to listen far otherwise and even if there be some one who through inherent goodness or natural reasonableness has had his eyes opened a little, and is humbled and taken captive by philosophy, how will his friends behave when they think that they are likely to lose the advantage which they are hoping to reap from his companionship? Will they not do and say anything to prevent him from yielding to his better nature, and to render his teacher powerless, using to this end private intrigues as well as public prosecutions? There can be no doubt of it and how can one who is this circumstanced ever become a philosopher? Impossible. Then were we not right in saying that even the very qualities which make a man a philosopher may, if he be ill-educated, divert him from philosophy, no less than riches and their accompaniments and the other so-called goods of life? We were quite right. Thus, my excellent friend, is brought about all that ruin and failure which I have been describing of the natures best adapted to the best of all pursuits. They are natures which we maintain to be rare at any time, this being the class out of which come the men who are the authors of the greatest evil to states and individuals, and also of the greatest good, when the tide carries them in that direction but a small man never was the doer of any great thing, either to individuals or to states. That is most true, he said. And so philosophy is left desolate, with her marriage right incomplete, for her own have fallen away and forsaken her, and while they are leading a false and unbecoming life, other unworthy persons, seeing that she has no kinsmen to be her protectors, enter in and dishonor her and fasten upon her the reproaches which as you say her reprovers utter who affirm of her votaries that some are good for nothing and that the greater number deserve the severest punishment that is certainly what people say yes and what else would you expect i said when you think of the puny creatures who seeing this land open to them a land well stocked with fair names and showy titles like prisoners running out of prison into a sanctuary take a leap out of their trades into philosophy those who doing so being probably the cleverest hands at their own miserable crafts for although philosophy be in this evil case still there remains a dignity about her which is not to be found in the arts and many are thus attracted by her whose natures are imperfect and whose souls are maimed and disfigured by their meannesses, as their bodies are by their trades and crafts. Is not this unavoidable? Yes. Are they not exactly like a bald little tinker who has just got out of durance and come into a fortune? He takes a bath and puts on a new coat, and is decked out as a bridegroom going to marry his master's daughter, who is left poor and desolate. A most exact parallel what will be the issue of such marriages will they not be vile and bastard there can be no question of it and when persons who are unworthy of education approach philosophy and make an alliance with her who is in a rank above them what sort of ideas and opinions are likely to be generated will they not be sophisms captivating to the ear having nothing in them genuine or worthy of or akin to true wisdom No doubt, he said. Then, Aramandus, I said, the worthy disciples of philosophy will be but a small remnant. Perchance some noble and well-educated person, detained by exile in her service, who in the absence of corrupting influences remains devoted to her, or some lofty soul born in a mean city, the politics of which he condemns and neglects, and there may be a gifted few who leave the arts, which they justly despise, and come to her or peradventure there are some who are restrained by our friend theages bridal for everything in the life of theages conspired to divert him from philosophy but ill-health kept him away from politics my own case of the internal sign is hardly worth mentioning for rarely if ever has such a monitor been given to any other man Those who belong to this small class have tasted how sweet and blessed a possession philosophy is, and have also seen enough of the madness of the multitude, and they know that no politician is honest, nor is there any champion of justice at whose side they may fight and be saved. Such an one may be compared to a man who has fallen among wild beasts, He will not join in the wickedness of his fellows, but neither is he able singly to resist all their fierce natures, and therefore, seeing that he would be of no use to the state or to his friends, and reflecting that he would have to throw away his life without doing any good either to himself or others, he holds his peace and goes his own way. He is like one who, in the storm of dust and sleet which the driving wind hurries along, retires under the shelter of a wall, and seeing the rest of mankind full of wickedness, he is content, if only he can live his own life and be pure from evil or unrighteousness, and depart in peace and good will with bright hopes. Yes, he said, and he will have done a great work before he departs. A great work, yes, but not the greatest, unless he find a state suitable to him. For in a state which is suitable to him, he will have a larger growth and be the saviour of his country as well as of himself the causes why philosophy is in such an evil name have now been sufficiently explained the injustice of the charges against her has been shown is there anything more which you wish to say nothing more on that subject he replied but i should like to know which of the governments now existing is in your opinion the one adapted to her not any of them i said and that is precisely the accusation which i bring against them not one of them is worthy of the philosophic nature and hence that nature is warped and estranged as the exotic seed which is sown in a foreign land becomes denaturalized and is wont to be overpowered and to lose itself in the new soil even so this growth of philosophy instead of persisting degenerates and receives another character But, if philosophy ever finds in the state that perfection which she herself is, then will be seen that she is in truth divine, and that all other things, whether natures of men or institutions, are but human. And now I know that you are going to ask what that state is. No, he said, there you are wrong, for I was going to ask another question. "'whether it is the state of which we are the founders and inventors, "'or some other?' "'Yes,' I replied, "'ours in most respects. "'But you may remember my saying before, "'that some living authority would always be required in the state "'having the same idea of the Constitution which guided you, "'when as a legislator you were laying down the laws. "'That was said,' he replied. "'Yes, but not in a satisfactory manner.' You frightened us by interposing objections, which certainly showed that the discussion would be long and difficult, and what still remains is the reverse of easy. What is there remaining? The question how the study of philosophy may be so ordered as not to be the ruin of the state. All great attempts are attended with risk. Hard is the good, as men say. Still, he said, Let the point be cleared up, and the inquiry will then be complete. Part one.